Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody. It's Mark Graben here. Welcome to the podcast. It's episode 449 for June 29th, 2022. Our guest today is Dr. Lisa Yarian from the Cleveland Clinic. She's going to be talking about their journey with continuous improvement and problem solving and lean management systems. It's a journey that started in its earliest form for them way back in 2006. We're going to be talking a lot about the last two years and how lean got them through COVID or how the methods and approaches they've been developing and practicing made really difficult and unprecedented times go more smoothly than it would have gone otherwise. So as always, it's great talking to Lisa, hearing her thoughts and reflections. And as always, I want to thank you for listening. Now, here's today's episode. Well, hi, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, My guest today, uh, a returning guest, is Dr. Lisa Yarian. She joined Cleveland Clinic um, in the anatomic pathology department back in 2004. She's held several pathology and enterprise leadership positions. And after 10 years serving as a medical director of continuous improvement, Lisa was named Cleveland Clinic's first chief improvement officer. Um, of continuous improvement in December 2019. Um, Lisa is going to be one of the keynote speakers I want to mention at the 2022 AME conference that's being held in Dallas, October 17th to 20th. I'll be there. I hope you'll be there too. You can learn more at www.ame.org and there's a link to the conference in the show notes. So like I mentioned, Lisa was previously a guest here, uh, episode 282, uh, five years ago. And also joining us for that episode was um, our friend and, and her colleague and friend, um, Nate Hurl. Um, so Lisa, as I, as I welcome you back to the podcast, um, you know, thank you for being here. And I know we wanted to start by um, taking some time to remember Nate. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's, a, it's really good to see you. I appreciated spending some time with you at the Catalysis Conference. I guess it's been a couple of weeks now. Um, and it's good to see you, and it's nice to have a time to remember Nate, and it's a little sad to be here together with Nate. Nate's really the person mm-hmm. who introduced me to you, Mark. You might remember mm-hmm. yeah. he very deliberately sought a conference that you would be at for the sole, mm-hmm. and attended for the sole purpose of meeting be, meeting you, befriending you, and uh, convincing you to come and visit us. Well, that wasn't yeah, a hard so. sell. That was a, <laughs> a, a nice offer, an opportunity that... That he and you provided. Uh, thanks. We certainly enjoyed the partnership. I know he was a big fan of you. And uh, one of the things that I really appreciate and miss about Nate is that he always made things fun. And so when we did podcasts with you in the past, uh, he had a really nice combination of pushing our thinking forward with great questions and reflections and doing it in a way that was not only challenging, but really fun to be challenged in that way. So we mm-hmm. miss him a lot. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I appreciated Nate and, you know, admired what, what he was doing, what you two, you know, were, were doing together, those opportunities to visit, to do the podcasts, um, to have some fun going out to uh, a baseball game together. That's right. um, so uh, a lot of memories and, you know, it's been about a year uh, since his passing and, um, 
we we, yeah. we do miss him and you know thankfully have uh, the recordings including you know the podcast that um the three of us did together um the episode that Nate and I did um episode 404 um I'm going to make a bad computer joke here it's ironic you know 404 is the error code for not found and it's you know I'm glad the recording is still there we miss we miss Nate, even though he's not found um, with us every day. He's remembered, and um, I'm sure you think about him. Uh, you, you and your colleagues, I know, think about him a lot. Yep, absolutely. We actually had a team picnic yesterday, and it's one of his favorite events of the year. And uh, so nice to be the, together as a team, uh, and nice to have community in which to mourn and, and miss him. Um, but. It's not the same without him, for sure. Yeah, you know. Um, so you know, Nate and I, you know, and he he was um, you know generous in in his sharing um, in what y'all were doing. Um, you know, in that last episode, we talked about COVID times. Um, you know, ramping up new processes or radically different new versions of processes around mass testing and and standing up new treatment options and and then you know the mass vaccination era and one one thing i remember um you know nate didn't take credit for that you know he he was very gracious and generous in talking about what the team what the organization had done and there was there was a lot of great work i know he played a a big role in in leading and challenging and bringing people along (laughs) yeah that's for sure true i think that um, I, I agree with you. Nate didn't take credit because he could see how many other people were involved in doing that work. You know, we always, you know, there's very little that we do, if anything, on our own, right? We're always working with doctors, nurses, techs, uh, other caregivers in the organization. But I think what Nate brought that was so unique and powerful was the method. And it was a very clear, focused method on. What is our next problem to solve? And early on in the pandemic, you know, many, everybody in healthcare maybe was facing essentially the same set of problems, right? How do we, how do we, how do we keep our patients safe? How do we keep our caregivers safe? How do we prepare for this massive unknown? So in some ways, we had different, different versions of those problems, but in some ways we were all dealing with the same problems. And, you know, that initial reaction is commonly you know, even at the Cleveland Clinic or at places that have been doing continuous improvement for a while, I suspect a an initial reaction of firefighting and overwhelm because you don't have a method or if you don't have a method. Um, when it came to the vaccination, or sorry, when it came to the um, testing center, which was really that first big effort as soon as um, COVID arrived in Cleveland, what he brought was a sense of order and how do we solve this big complex problem by breaking it down into very clear next problems to solve and taking a very rapid PDCA approach to it. And I think just having a clear method that was already recognized and known to be effective provided this tremendous sense of reassurance to the team that enabled them to calm down and focus on the problem that was in front of them. So yes, there were many, many other people who, you know, stood in a very cold parking garage in March in in Cleveland and 
you know, it was scary and patients were scared and, you know, it was hard. Um, but I think that that core focus on problem solving and having an, a known effective method really gave everybody confidence and hope. And when facing a really, really scary, hard challenge that's complicated and can be overwhelming, that clarity, that confidence and hope um, just makes a world of difference. And he really continued to do that throughout the pandemic. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, across our our Cleveland Clinic community and and many places in healthcare, um, something that folks will remember and appreciate Nate for for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, that approach that you describe and this, this methodology for solving problems, um, you know, is powerful. There, there are many that look for uh, best practices. They look to journal articles, not to discount any of that, the right place, right time. But when you're doing kind of unprecedented things in unprecedented times, you have to develop something. And there had been, you know, years of practice with that model. And, and, and as, you know, as a recap for listeners, how, when, when, when did that journey begin before I, w- I want to come back and talk with you more about um, pandemic times, but when, when would you say that journey started? So we first created what would be recognized as a continuous improvement team in 2006. So that was before I was involved. Nate was recruited in 2007. In 2009, I started to work with the team. And at that point we were doing a lot of project-based work. So we would take on big projects and some tools. So there were some basic tools we were offering. It was really in late 2012 that we started to deliberately focus on building a culture. And um, I've spoken before uh, about really the charge to shift from, okay, we've been doing this continuous improvement stuff for years when are we going to fundamentally change the culture? And so in late 2012, we started our culture of improvement A3. So we articulated the current state, the desired state, and really analyzed what was between here and there, what was getting in the way, what was going to help us. And it was through that A3 that we developed our initial model areas. And it was really that deliberate model area work And I want to clarify, many people do model areas for like the model nursing unit or the model Mm -hmm. laboratory testing process or something. Our model was about modeling the culture. How could we develop a way to create the ideal culture? And for us, that was a culture we defined as every caregiver capable, empowered, and expected to make improvements every day. And so when we started to work on that, we met the first team. And the first thing they told us about was problems. And we found that pretty consistently. You know, people don't come to us saying we want a daily management system or a visual management system. They face problems in their work. And so we started with problem solving. And so that was 2013, really, that we were working with that team and evolved from the initial problem solving, which was A3-based to how do we create a system that enables this team to continue to identify and solve problems on an ongoing way. So we developed the problem-solving system, which really became the first system in our model as that team continued to work and then other teams began to come see and engage. We then identified 
new needs or additional needs, and then centered on, over time, the four key systems of our model. But it took us years before we really spread that broadly. So in 2013 um, was when the nursing leader, the executive chief nursing officer at the time, Dr. Kelly Hancock, came to see it and asked us to work in nursing. And the nursing inpatient nursing unit, Mark, was one of the first sites that you visit, visited when you first visited us. Um, it was years before we really got broad involvement, capability, traction, engagement in problem solving as mm -hmm. a methodology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the visit and I believe Kelly was there to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, see, continue to see what people were working on and, you know, to share the progress and, and to share the credit. Uh, for all of that, so let, let's let's do some some time hopping though. So let's let's jump ahead. Then we'll, we'll maybe jump back in time. You know, this is maybe then you know early 2020, seven or eight years into that part of the journey around focusing on culture and problem solving. And and you addressed this on stage um, at the Catalysis Summit. But I want to ask you for this audience. You know, what, what's what's your summary? You know, looking back at how the Cleveland Clinic Improvement Model continuous improvement, problem solving, lean management system, all of these different labels we could put on this. How, how was that helpful um, from, from your perspective during pandemic times? Yeah, good question. I would say that the two key systems that we found most helpful were our daily management system. So our tiered daily huddles. In 2018, we developed a an enterprise-wide tiered daily huddle system to enable us to uh, identify and solve problems rapidly, support our caregivers, and really foster this culture of identifying and solving problems, problems or opportunities uh, across the enterprise. That was really a dramatic shift for our organization. I, in reflection, I never thought about this at the time. When you're when you're learning about as a physician, learning about continuous improvement and lean, you hear all these things, and you're like, okay, okay, I hear this. Problems are opportunities. We should, you know, embrace problems and ask people to elevate them. But there's this very practical translation that seemed to it never became apparent to me. I can't say it's not out there, but never became really clear to me that just sort of saying that uh, doesn't enable people to do it and certainly doesn't get them to do it. So there's this very practical component for, for elevating problems that is, um, okay, when do you want me to do that? Where do you want me to do that? How do you want me to do that? And then what's going to happen when I do? And none of that gets completed when we just say you should embrace problems as opportunities and you should encourage your team to bring forth problems. It's sort of something that folks could nod their head to, but never actually do. It's kind of hard, yeah, right? right? Like, yeah. that's like, be nice or be good. You know, it's sort of vague. Yeah, the true sure. daily huddle system gave every manager and leader a very concrete time, place, opportunity, agenda, method where they could do that, right? So they would say, okay, what problems happened in our area today? They might be a potential serious safety event. It might be a patient fall. It might be uh, a caregiver experience issue or patient experience issue. People would, could bring, needed to bring those forth. So there you were as a manager asking for that. 
and then people bring it to you, there's your ideal opportunity to embrace it and say, thank you for bringing that forward. Let's talk about it. Let's, you know, whatever your, your next step is, your method is, what do we understand about root cause? You can move into the coaching kata, but it provided that anchor. And because it's scheduled, it gave you time to practice being that type of problem embracing leader on a regular basis. So that foundation was in place. What COVID did was enabled us to really put that system to the test because suddenly we had a whole lot of new problems that we had never faced before and never would have been able to anticipate if we didn't have the system in place that enabled us to, in a tiered, cascaded fashion, every day, same time, in the same place, identify what are the new, you know, what are the existing problems? And then what are the new problems that our team members are facing because of COVID? And then help support each other and our teams in solving those problems through the tiered daily huddle system. So we took that system. We had some standard work around how do we change the agenda? We accelerated the and modified that standard work because before it would take us weeks to make a change. We made it to changes within hours to say, okay, now we need to know how many patients do we have with COVID? How many are under investigation? Because at that point we were treating them essentially as though they did. Um, how many caregivers are out with COVID? Um, and how do we aggregate that information across the entire organization? So we were able to pivot that very quickly. And people were like suddenly leaning into huddles much more heavily because now it was sort of, you know, have to know there's so much urgency around COVID, you know, infections that are at stake, lives were believed to be at stake and in some cases were. So there was this sort of clinging to the system that we had and kind of celebration of something that, you know, in the prior couple of years had been built, but really hadn't had that urgency around it. So I'd say one is the tiered huddle system. We had also built the problem solving systems. Again, they were typically systems around which teams would huddle once a week or every couple of weeks, they would huddle at their Kaizen board and talk about what were the problems in front of us. And in A3, I shared this at the summit also, and A3 would in some cases be done through a collaborative A3 problem-solving program where we would spend a lot of time teaching people how to you know, do a root cause analysis or how to analyze their data. Um, and that was a, a basically a three-month program. And so we had kind of unwittingly created this expectation that it takes three months to solve a problem. Now we had this urgency, which enabled us to really pivot to say, no, no, we don't need three months. Like, in fact, there's no way we can take three months to set up a testing site. Um, you know, we're going to do this within, I think we did it in four or five days. Um, but that you can use that methodology. What was good that we had in place was an acceptance of the methodology. So folks didn't, folks believed, for the most part, believed in the methodology as an effective way to problem, to problem solve. They didn't see how agile it could be, how rapid we could, how, how rapidly we could apply it. And so COVID really gave us an opportunity to say, okay, and we can use it very acute, you know, with these very acute problems, we can use it really quickly. Those would be, I would say, the two main ones, the two most important ones. And then the idea of, you know, PDCA as part of the problem solving methodology, this 
you know, we're not going to have time to perfect anything or to your point, wait for somebody else to develop a best practice or go search the literature. We just mm-hmm. have to try something. And then when we see how it works, make it better. And so throughout all the problem solving activity, we were trying to make our performance visible, leverage standard work, do PDCA so that we could continue to improve the way that we were doing it. But mm-hmm. I think having that found those foundational pieces in place meant that we didn't have to spend a lot of time talking about how were we going to share mm-hmm. information? How were we going to identify problems? How were we going to solve these problems? It was really our core method. And it was how do we adapt these to mm-hmm. solve these types of problems at this pace, which is mm-hmm. we mostly hadn't had to in the past. Yeah. So what I hear you saying, I hear you talking about two key things, uh, importance and urgency, right? So the urgency of having to solve problems quickly, having to iterate quickly, having to move forward, even if we think, well, it's not perfect, but we have to do something and we can iterate our way through anything that comes up, um, you know, urgency. But then on importance, if I'm remembering correctly, one thing that you said in your discussion with John Toussaint and John Shook um, at the summit, um, I'm paraphrasing, but I remember you saying, correct me if I'm wrong or elaborate on this, um, that some of the effect of, you know, if, if, if you're giving people a countermeasure, that's not really a countermeasure to a problem that they care about, the adoption of that countermeasure might not be as enthusiastic. Um, to your point earlier, nobody speaks up and says, hey, we want a lean management system. They might not all, you know, they might also not ask for a countermeasure like daily tiered huddles, but it sounds like you know the importance of those huddles during COVID times would pique people's attention. And if they didn't already believe it, I'm sure there are people who did believe it through their existing practice to say, well, the, these huddles are now critically important. We're all in on uh, participating and, and making the most of it. Fair to say? Yeah, fair to say. I appreciate that you uh, brought forth my comment. Um, I've seen that over and over again. And I think some of us who are in the business of change kind of wander around asking, why isn't anybody interested in my fantastic countermeasure? And your countermeasure might be fantastic, but you, in some cases, people need to feel like they have a problem. Um, Nate actually used to talk a lot about this book that it was called something like the little red book of sales that he loved. And I have a Xerox copy because he Xeroxed it because he wanted me to read (laughs) it over and over again. Um, And it's really about like understanding what is the customer's need or what is the customer's problem. And sometimes when people are interested in our countermeasure, you think about in some way, pretty much everything that we offer or sell is a countermeasure to something we default to trying to tell people how wonderful the countermeasure is. And, you know, if I don't, if I'm not experiencing a problem, then I don't really care. Like a countermeasure, all of our countermeasures though cost, even if you have your internal team, they cost your time, your energy, your focus. Those are, those are finite resources, particularly in a healthcare environment and particularly today. So even if you're going to help as a CI person, that leader's got to, or the manager, that caregiver's got to invest something. You're much better off to understand what are the problems they are facing. And then when you can attach that countermeasure to a problem they've experienced, 
that's when it really becomes something that's attractive to them. Yeah. And I, I found the book here. I'll put a link in the show notes. The Little Red Book of Selling, 12.5 Principles of Sales Greatness. I, I'm, that makes me curious. That's a good subtitle. It makes me curious. Why is it 12.5? <laughs> you should read it. And they would be thrilled. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, gaining acceptance you know, to change um, is a complex process um, to, to, to help people work through. Um, you know, going back to maybe kind of, uh, what you said earlier about going back to 2012, like I could, I could hear the A3 thinking, um, you described this A3 of, a, you know, a culture of improvement. I appreciate that you started with a description of the current state and then a future state, and then that gap kind of helps then influence what, what do we work on or how do we break down that problem and, and start making progress, you know, um, I hear people all the time, we'll talk about a future state or they'll have sort of a vague goal of, we need to transform the culture. I'm like, all right, from what to what? And then they might articulate the, the future. So my, my question for you, Lisa, is, you know, kind of, is it, was it, can it be, was it painful at, at all to describe the current state, good, bad, or otherwise, like to try to get consensus around what yes. is the current state? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it was difficult. So there were multiple challenges. One of our challenges was a sense that we were doing pretty well, right? So you could arguably point to evidence that the Cleveland Clinic is doing well enough. So why should we build this culture? What does a culture of improvement even mean when you already kind of have a culture of excellence, right? I don't think many folks would say we have a culture of complacency at Cleveland Clinic. So we have a culture of excellence, sort of. Um, what do I mean by a culture of improvement? How is it different? Um, and then there are also, I would say, competing interests in what is the method or the how or the what we need to create a culture of improvement. In my mind, now, took me a long time to think through this, but <laughs> now, I think it's really about the method. So if I think about culture of excellence, you know, I reflect on my own tendencies. I was always, you know, somebody who was trying to achieve and make things better, make myself better, perform better, whatever. But my method was to try hard as an independent agent, as an individual. I might call on others for help, but oftentimes my play is try harder. And I think mm. it actually have a lot in healthcare. If I'm right, a nurse, right. I'm a tech, rather than fix the system to make it work better for everyone all the time, I figured out my own ways. And if you talk to people, a lot of them say, well, this is the way I do it because it works a little better. This is the way I do it because right. it works a little better, or I always do this or whatever. And or, people or, end up or, becoming exhausted. What, mm -hmm. what I hear is this works, this works for me. There you go. Right. Is that is that the key criteria now, right? Right. And like, and if you have nothing else, then what works for you? You know, if you have no other options, right? If you have no method to figure out what works best or most consistently for everyone, then that's what it ends up being. So it's a culture of improvement that's based on developing a method that's going to be better consistently or is going to consistently deliver better outcomes. Um, I think there was also a component of we're not getting better fast enough, and we're not going to be able to improve as quickly as we need to. 
So, you know, even though we have a strong brand reputation, we perform well in some things, we certainly have very real opportunities in some of our safety, quality, patient experience metrics. Um, And so, you know, highlighting some of those gaps, which some folks are not thrilled or comfortable with somebody running around highlighting with her A3 and a, you know, pencil. Um, And then there were also folks who've been, who had been working to, I would say, foster continuous improvement or quality improvement in some way in the organization since 2006. And so me showing up and saying, okay, let's, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm holding a pencil around how do we do this really could make other folks feel threatened that the way they were doing it or working to solve that problem or close that gap wasn't enough or wasn't good enough. And so here I am, um, you know, trying to highlight a problem that really is, uh, you know, the current state, you got to talk about the problems. (laughs) Sometimes people felt sensitive about, people didn't feel good about, but I actually found that the A3, and and I got the advice to do the A3 from a friend, Mark Reich, who was working at the Lean Enterprise Institute. He used to work at Toyota. He's well-versed in Lean. I didn't come up with this on my own. Um, so having a good friend, coach, incredibly important. Um, but having a piece of paper is you know, a, a way to de-escalate pretty quickly and easily, right? So it's not, you know, I'm showing up in a boardroom or a high-stakes space with a fancy PowerPoint that feels done and polished. You know, it's sitting down with Lisa with this piece of paper that's very messy and watching her write and take notes and revise the thinking or the story as you're talking with her. And I found out this trick um, that, and I've talked about this before too, that if I'm talking with you, I would pick up a different color pen. And I know that, you know, the, the classical lean thing is to use a pencil, but um, if I use the pen in a different color, it would help you see where your thinking had filled in and you could see however much green or blue was getting added to the piece of paper, how much you were influencing what the story or the narrative was for this change. So um, I think it was, I think it was, it was, <laughs> it was a good enough thing to get us started. It most certainly could have been better, but that's probably the advice I give most folks. I had, um, dinner with an organization similarly wanted to tell me much like you described, like we're going to start this transformation and we, you know, they had logos and boards and posters and all these countermeasures, right. All these solutions that they had developed and they were very excited about it. And, uh, I listened and then as they were wrapping it up, I want to know what I thought. And I said, what is, what is the purpose of this transformation that you're planning? And they just paused and looked at each other. They'd spend more time in developing countermeasures than really understanding what is the purpose. And, and what COVID did, I think, was give us this very clear urgency and purpose. At that point, we didn't spend any time convincing people that we needed to do it. And then, again, what's your method? Everybody's going to be solving problems. Are we going to use a tried, proven method where not only do we know that it's effective or more effective than trying hard? or more effective than whatever other method we would use, we all have a common method. So as we move in and out of project teams, which we were doing a lot, 
we all had a common set of tools, a common language, a common approach. We could rely on, you know, some core principles. That really, I think, was powerful. Mm-hmm. And when, when you mentioned purpose, I mean, that's really getting to the upper left corner of mm-hmm. the left-hand side of the A3. Before we even dive into describing the current real reality, whether that's processes or, you know, facts or mindsets that uh, exist. I mean, it's probably easier to get our head wrapped around a physical process with physical flow. The flow of specimens through a pathology process can be observed more directly than these elements of, of culture and principles and in mindsets. Um, so that's a good reminder to, to even start there. Why are we talking about this? Why is this important to gain clarity around that? Um, I, w- I was going to say, though, back back to your A3, like, I'm, I'm not a stickler on doing it in pencil or electronically or whatever, because I think it, it's the thinking. But maybe we'll, we'll, we'll try to find you a set of colored pencils that are uh, all... <laughs> <laughs> and erasable. Also, also erasable or, you know, there's a there's erasable ink we could use. Uh, I, I, I love those little clicky four color pens, but I don't know if there's got to be a version that's erasable. Yeah, I would expect so. I don't know. I'm not so. I'm not so worried about it. I'm <laughs> well, not a fine. stickler. I'm not a stickler for pencils, and I'm also, as you heard, catalysis. Not a stickler for a literal translation of the word gamba. Sure. <laughs> also talk about. Um, but one other element of the culture, and and I'll put a link to this in the show notes. One other conversation that uh, Lisa and I had was back in episode seven of a different podcast series, the Habitual Excellence mm. podcast series through Value Capture. Um, you know, one thing that's very noticeable, not because it says things on the walls when I've had the chance to visit Cleveland Clinic sites, but there there does seem to be a really strong culture of patients first, which seems like one of those pieces of culture, existing culture, current state culture that you would want to be strengthening mm-hmm. through any of this work that you're doing um, to improve the culture. Can, can you share, you know, a little bit more about how you orient how do you stay grounded maybe in, in the improvement work that you're doing to make sure that it remains to that patient's first principle? Yeah, it's a great question. So we, if we think back to the A3, you know, one of the suggestions that Mark Reich had made was to think about the analysis in terms of what's helping or what's supporting or enabling the culture you're desire, your target condition, and what's working against you. And so very quickly that patient's first culture became, um, you know, enabling element. And when I had heard and visited other, heard about and visited other organizations who were pursuing lean, um, it felt like that value, that, that emphasis on the customer was a little bit harder to create and capture in their improvement work. For us, that patient's first emphasis was um, already in place, which was great. Um, I didn't have to convince people to improve. So for example, um, you know, I visited places or been asked by others, how do we get people to engage in improvement work or to want to improve? And I was like, what do you mean? And they like, you know, and they were like, well, how do you get doctors, for instance, how do you get doctors to participate? And I would be, and I was like, well, we just asked them, you know, of course they look (laughs) at me like I have three heads or, or I'm totally lying. Right. And, And I'm really not because, you know, depends on what I'm asking them. If I say like, take, you know, hours and hours out of your day to do something that doesn't feel value added because I'm calling it lean or a Kaizen event, 
yes, I would not be able to get people to be involved. But if I say, hey, we're trying to, you know, make something better for patients, can we get your input? Can we get this? You know, what's the support? People really have no problem engaging. I think the limitation that we face in patients first is that um, we're so focused on identifying with the needs of the patient. We're very um, focused on, or we try to be focused on empathy. But again, it, it, it enables trying harder. It enables heroism, which is not, you know, a reliable structured improvement methodology that's going to enable us to consistently deliver better for the patient. I think that what we had to do and continue to work to do is make sure that when we believe and want to be doing what's best for patients, that we actually have some data and evidence of what that really is. So, you know, sometimes we get caught up in imagining or believing what we think is best for patients. And sometimes we challenge that, need to challenge that to say, well, have we actually asked them? Um, what's your evidence? What's your data? Um, and then we also have, in some cases, developed some countermeasures. One of them is a, a panel of patients that we ask for input and you know opinions to help us develop processes, which is great, but there's a tremendous amount of bias that can be introduced by a panel of people who actually have the time, interest, and investment to be serving on this type of panel for the Cleveland Clinic. It may not be representative of the, you know, millions of people that we see every day or every year. And so pushing on even that to say, okay, is that really the best way to get really, you know, diverse, comprehensive quality information about what our patients want and mm-hmm. need? Yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's another trap that I've seen of, um, you know, that patient role being filled by somebody who's also a staff member. Mm-hmm. I was working with a children's hospital. This was probably a decade ago. And we talked about getting parent representation in, in this work we were doing. And so, well, you know, they said, well, so-and-so over here, their child had been a patient here at the hospital. And we had a lot of discussion around, well, yes, you're a parent, but you also know a little too much about how things work here. That's different than somebody that's a purely external fresh eyes perspective, perhaps. Well, it's totally true. And also sometimes if you work there, you have a different experience because Mm. people recognize you. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, my father was involved in an accident, um, terrible accident, a tree branch fell and broke his, uh, broke his neck in three places, hit him Mm. in the head. Mm. And so I, you know, I went, you know, they transferred him to, he lives in the country. They transferred him here, but I, you know, went into the ER to meet the ambulance wearing my badge. Um, so I know that my experience was for better, for worse, different than what somebody else experiences. The fact that I could even go in <laughs> is probably, you know, dramatically different from another's experience. And also, you know, I'm an N of one. Um, it may not be the best way to, the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing I'm curious about is the balance between Here's, here's why I would propose. I'm curious to hear your reactions to it. That patients first doesn't mean patients only. That mm. with a patient's first perspective, you can also care deeply about the staff of making sure they're not overburdened, that we're not relying on hero culture or workarounds, um, that we can focus on, on trying to prevent burnout. 
or help people recover from burnout if it's happened. I, I was curious if you could kind of share your thoughts on also kind of addressing, um, you know, staff needs, um, even in normal times. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in respect for people. And that's the patients um, who have real needs uh, and the caregivers who also have real needs. Um, our vision uh, that our CEO brought in uh, and really I love is that we are the best place to receive care anywhere, anywhere and the best place to work in healthcare. Creating processes or implementing countermeasures that are fantastic for patients but are bad for caregivers or too overly burdensome or do not um, support caregivers, you know, they're, 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 it's, they're unsustainable, first of all, because caregivers are never going to continue to practice them or use those processes. You'll be back to workarounds and, you know, non-standard processes or ways to deliver things. But taking care of your caregivers is the way to take care of patients especially in the economy now where, you know, staffing and hiring is difficult. Um, we and others really are struggling to hire enough people, keep people, retain people. Having an, an environment where you're treated with respect is incredibly important. And having processes that are not perceived to be or actually prioritizing the experience of patients really to the detriment of caregivers. Um, I just think think that's that's untenable. It's it's really it's really not sustainable. Um, and one of the major benefits that I see to the continuous improvement work is the ability to enable caregivers to improve the care. That is the most energizing, transformative, engaging activity I've ever seen. Um, and part of it is the ability to make things better and to know you made things better and to know how you made things better, which really, you know, engenders a sense of agency. Part of it is having evidence of the work that you're doing. In some cases, before you've even improved anything, that can be very you know, rewarding and exciting. I've seen this time and time again. I shared an example at the catalysis meeting. I did one of my assignments now is access. And I now lead a large team supporting access, access to healthcare, scheduling, uh, things like that. And one of the teams does transplant scheduling. And I got this emailed report of how many patients we had transplanted so far this year. And I offered it to the team and they were ecstatic because they'd been scheduling, 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 but they had no idea how many of those patients actually went on to Mm. receive a transplant, which oh is, gosh. you know, life-saving, wow. life-changing experience. And so you think mm -hmm. about how fun would your, how fun would this podcast be for you, Mark, <laughs> if nobody ever posted anything in the chat, you don't know how many people viewed it, nobody ever came up to you and talked to you about it or asked you about it, it would be, it would be just work. Um, it wouldn't be fun at all. It wouldn't be rewarding. It wouldn't be engaging. And it's such a simple idea that you give people evidence of their work as a way to engage and motivate them. But yet, in so many ways and places, even those basic things we don't do or haven't done. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. a continuous improvement principle or a lean principle. <laughs> we talk about visual management, but I get mm -hmm. the impression we talk about more about more because we want to understand performance and identify problems. Mm -hmm. We want to use it strategically to solve problems. I think it's at least as valuable, if not more so, to engage people 
in the work that they're doing mm-hmm. to provide meaning and to provide a sense of, yeah. of, of impact. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a powerful example you shared of, of helping remind people of purpose and the close the loop about the impact of their work. You know, that that's, that's really powerful. I mean, I will say, and I've, I've said this for a long time about the podcast that there is some inherent enjoyment. Like these are like this conversation with you. These are conversations that um, I enjoy in and of themselves. And the fact that I get to record and share with others is uh, icing on the cake. <laughs> if you will. Good. I enjoy them as well. Um, it, 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 the only enjoyment does not come from looking at the, uh, the podcast statistics. I'm, I'm thankful for everybody who takes the time <laughs> to listen and, and learning is nice when somebody does come up though. I appreciate it when someone comes up and says hi at a place like the catalysis summit or the AME conference. I'm like, Hey, I listen to your podcast. Thanks for doing those. That, that helps. I mean, <laughs> I do appreciate that. Um, I was going to, you know, just share, you know, I thought when you talk about best place to receive care, best place to work in healthcare, you know, there's, um, you know, kind of kindred spirit thoughts I've heard articulated by the people at UMass Memorial Health, um, where the way they, they articulate it is best place to give care, best place to receive care. So there's those two pieces together. I don't know if it matters which order you put those in, but I think they, they it's, it's a yin and a yang. They kind of go hand in hand. You know, I had a guest years ago who wrote a book with a fairly provocative title or intentionally provocative, you know, it says, you know, patients come second. <laughs> and that's the camp that says, well, if you take care of the staff, they can take care of the patients. And, you know, I, I don't know if first or second matters, but, but both, it's not either yeah, you or. Need both. Yeah. <laughs> you clearly need both. Both. Yes. <laughs> Probably in any business or any organization, you clearly need an emphasis on both. And, you know, can you navigate supporting both? Mm-hmm. And what's the best way to navigate supporting both? Everybody's going to face problems. Everybody's going to be solving problems. What's the what's the method that you're going to use to make sure that you can really stay true to both? Yeah. And maybe a final topic here, Lisa, um, kind of touching on something that your colleague, uh, Melissa Vandergriff, shared at the Catalysis Summit, um, of having a method for creating alignment up and down, side to side in the organization. It's not enough just to have this goal. We need better alignment. Okay, what does that mean? And, you know, Melissa shared um, about an approach, um, OKRs, which I think people probably more associate with Silicon Valley or or, or, or startups. The book, uh, John Doerr is a venture capitalist. Um, book, Measure What Matters, that talks about this OKR methodology, objectives and key results. And I was wondering if you could share either, you know, in that context or additionally, what are some of the things that the Cleveland Clinic's trying to do to, um, you know, build greater alignment? Yeah. So, um, so we, we've been, I'd say, learning and applying uh, OKRs pretty broadly across the organization. We started with the CEO creating and sharing object, a set of objectives and key results that spanned our four care priorities, caring for patients, caring for caregivers, caring for community, caring for the organization, and then also research and education. So then uh, after he did that, then we started to work with them at the executive team, so his direct reports. And now we're using them into, you know, deeper into the organization, in our institutes, in our hospitals, in our divisions. I use them with my team, for instance. Um, We have, so I've been there for 18 years. I'm not sure that we've ever really had 
uh, a clearly articulated strategic plan with a real deployment focus. There were bright spots. There were places where individual leaders valued it, emphasized it, and built it. But as an enterprise, there was no kind of clear method that um, provided clarity on what people could attach to. Um, and so I think what Tom did, our CEO, Dr. Tom Mihaljevic, did with OKRs is he provided his set of goals and priorities for the organization. And then OKRs really became a method that people could use to look at you know, your leaders' OKRs, look right, look left, and then develop what are those objectives and then what are the key results. And then, well, there's several things I like about them. One is it's not just activity or key results. It's what's the objective? Like, why do these matter? What is it that I'm really trying to accomplish here? Um, and then it provides, you know, if you use a template or a tool, whatever your format is, it develop, it, it provides a common construct that we can use to bring our team together, look at them on a, on a cadence in a repeated way and look at each other. So we have a chief of staff, Dr. Barry Ridgeway, all of the clinical institute chairs report to her. She asked them to use this common format and method so that, you know, she has maybe 20 direct reports. She's not looking at 20 different sets of goals of varying, you know, length format, you know, we're all going to do it the same way so that we can be, um, efficient in understanding what everyone's looking, working on and looking across to see how does it all connect. So it has provided, um, I think, a lot of uh, improvement in our organizational, in our organization in terms of alignment. It's also fairly flexible. Um, I've seen and heard about organizations where they try to be very, very structured with like straight line goal alignment one-to-one. Uh, I don't think that would work well for us. Our organization is um, very innovative. I think people would feel constrained with mm -hmm. a very structured one-to-one, -one, you have to work on exactly mm -hmm. a subset of whatever yeah. your boss yeah. is doing. Um, and I don't think people have the patience to go through you know, all of the math or all of the kind of detailed work to make sure all those align. And one of the things John Doerr talks about in the book is, you know, it's pretty, misalignment stands out. You know, it's pretty easy for me to look at a short set of your OKRs and a short set of my OKRs and say, okay, are Mark and Lisa working towards the same thing or not? And then let's talk about that without us having to very deliberately write all that out or, or articulate all of that. So it gives us some flexibility. I think um, we have derived value from it. Um, it's actually, you know, the kind of thing where people don't recognize they have a problem and say, I need a, you know, an organizational alignment <laughs> system. Mm -hmm. Um, but when they start to see it, experience it, huddle around it, practice using it, they appreciate the clarity and the focus that mm -hmm. it brings their team. And it, it seemed to me to be very similar conceptually to strategy deployment in terms of what people are trying to accomplish through that. And you know, one example that comes to mind for me that sounds like what I think you were talking about in terms of having the you know alignment not being too rigid like there was an organization i visited where um, one of their high level goals uh, objectives was reducing patient harm or eliminating patient harm and one of the 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 measures they were using was patient falls 
Well, they were cascading that measure to every part of the organization. And there are some parts of the organization where patient falls is just not relevant. Or I remember the one example where they learned, this was an iteration and an opportunity for learning, like the labor and delivery department pushed back and said, we don't think our key patient safety measures should be falls. We should choose something else that rolls up and contributes to a measure of, let's say, you know, serious harm incidents. So I appreciated, you know, them sharing that example of, you know, maybe the first pass is very um, strict and then there's feedback or if it's too loose, maybe then to your point, you notice it and you can iterate and bring it to closer alignment. Yep. And that takes practice. And we talk mm-hmm. about catch ball a lot. It takes practice to learn how to, how to do that. You know, we have leaders who, you know, don't want to provide any or want to provide very little, you know, constraint or guidance to their team. We have other leaders who are, you know, heavy, much more heavy handed at that. Um, but you're absolutely right. And falls are a great example. Cent- uh, central line infections, uh, sepsis, mortality, things like that. Like for some org- parts of the organization, they have very few central lines or they, you know, sepsis isn't really an issue for their patients. You don't want to, you know, have them have a goal that feels meaningless to them because they don't have the ability to drive it. Getting back to our sense of engagement and purpose. You want everybody focused on really what matters most in those areas. It may not be easy to draw a straight line through the entire organization to the, you know, enterprise OKRs for every single one of those things. But that's really the leader's job to say, okay, if I'm managing obstetrics and the emergency department, I need to make sure they're both focused on what's matter, what matters most in their arenas, what's going to be most impactful for their patients and their caregivers. And then how do I pull those together to make sense of it at my level, you know, to align to what my leader does. Mm-hmm. Well, Lisa, thank you, you know, for sharing, um, you know, some of the progress and continued iteration and evolution of um, your approach, um, you and everybody there at uh, the Cleveland Clinic, you know, remind everybody, look uh, in the show notes, there'll be links to past episodes, including the episode Lisa and I did in the Habitual Excellence podcast series. Um, encourage people to check that out. And again, as a, a final reminder here, uh, the AME annual conference here, 2022, October 17th to 20 uh, in Dallas. You can learn more at AME. Dot org and maybe a you know, final question for you, Lisa. You know, you you had an opportunity at the Catalysis Summit to speak to a healthcare audience, or it was may- maybe ninety eight. A, f- a friend of mine who works in um, you know construction, or it's re- related to healthcare construction, right? So maybe he's a healthcare person. We'll call it ninety eight percent healthcare people at the AME conference. I think in past years, it, we'll, we'll call it twenty to thirty percent healthcare people. What what do you plan on talking about? What's the opportunity given, you know, kind of a broader audience of people from all sorts of different industries? Yeah, it's a great question, Mark. I think that I probably need to spend some time with the customer, with people in <laughs> other mm-hmm. industries. You know, mm-hmm. some of the I think some of the experience that I've had talking to folks in other industries is just curiosity about, you know, lean in healthcare. And we 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 may not all work in healthcare, but we're clearly all users of healthcare. And if you know, if I were, although that's a little bit dangerous, but if I were not in healthcare, if I were the customer, what I'd be interested in is like, when is it going to get better? Like, when can we really expect what we've gotten in other industries, a higher quality outcome at a at a lower cost, maybe, but higher quality outcome for sure. 
Um, when are we going to really see that in healthcare? The airline industry has become more reliable. The automotive industry production has become much more reliable, much safer. When are we going to see these gains in healthcare? Um, and how? How are we going to get there? What do we need to do to get there? Um, so that's part of what I'm going to attempt to tackle. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think that I, I agree with you. People have um, a personal interest in the healthcare system, whether they're a patient or a family member is or has been, or they know they will be at some point. So yeah, there, I think there is that deep curiosity. And I think there's opportunities to help connect dots um, about culture, leadership, um, methodology for improvement, not just hopes and dreams of improvement, but methodology. There, there's a lot to learn back across other industries. Um, you know, my wife, who you'll have a chance to meet at AME, and she's going to be part of a panel there, uh, learned a lot from an opportunity. John Toussaint invited her to come visit um, ThetaCare back in the day. And she learned a lot, particularly about strategy deployment, because that, that's it's a management process. It's a culture. And she was able to bring that back into the manufacturing space. So um, I, I know there's a lot of opportunity to learn in all directions. Good. Yeah. Hopefully share some good stories. Inspire some folks, share some good some good learning. But yeah, I, I really look forward to seeing you and and meeting Amy there. Yeah, well, it'll be fun. So uh, again, our guest here today has been Dr. Lisa Yarian. Um, come join us at AME. You can not only hear her speak, but have a chance to ask questions of your own and and, and chat about the healthcare system and lessons that you could bring back either to your health system or. Um, your own organization, uh, regardless of where you work. So, Lisa, this has been a lot of fun. Let, let's do this again more frequently than than every five years, maybe. How about that? I think we should do the turnabout. <laughs> we could we could do that. Lisa had an idea of sort of she wants to play guest host and ask me questions, right? I think your audience would love to hear Mark's point of view. Uh, Hopefully, I'll have answers worthy of of the questions. But okay, let's let's do let's do let's do that. I, that would be fun. I would love to talk again. Okay, look forward to that. So, thanks again for for being here uh, on the podcast again, Lisa. Thank you, Mark. Enjoy your day. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.